Fellow traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Definitive, the go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitive's head of America's oil analyst. We're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. In light of the continued news of COVID upticks and new lockdowns, Jim and I will be discussing how we see a second wave impacting energy here in our half of the world. Now, Jim, my kids like puzzles, so tell us about the puzzle that is coronavirus. It appears that scientists figured out pieces of the origins of the coronavirus. Let me try to assemble the pieces. In August of 2018, Chinese veterinarians isolated the virus that was killing the world's largest hog population, African swine fever. No cure, no vaccine. The virus can live in the meat for 150 days and in the soil for three to four months. Don't worry, it doesn't affect humans but 100% deadly for hogs and pigs, as per doctors Scott D. and Gordon Spronk from my alma mater, the University of Minnesota. By the way, a pig is an immature hog under 120 pounds. Anyway, by the beginning of 2020, pork production was already down 36%, some 20 million metric tons annually. Pork prices in China doubled from 2018 levels. At the same time, In retaliation for President Trump's tariffs on Chinese goods, Chinese officials slapped debilitating tariffs on pork from the U.S. For what it's worth, the largest producer of pork in the U.S. is Smithfield Foods, and they are a subsidiary of WH Foods based in... Yeah, you guessed it, China. Actually, Hong Kong. WH Foods also owns 68 other big food brands around the U.S., Mexico, and Europe. The hope was their European production, the second biggest pork producer in the world, could replace the U.S. tonnage. They could not. The result was an animal protein hole in the Chinese diet of 1.7 million metric tons a month. For those engineering types doing the math in your head, that is a bit under 3.75 billion pounds a month. Muy grande! To try to plug the hole, some industrious meat handlers turned to the indigenous creatures. Avoiding the civet cat, the 2002 SARS culprit, they turned in part to the pangolin. A pangolin has an armadillo-type head and a body with a thick lizard-like tail. Instead of armor, the pangolin is covered in big, rust-colored hard scales. A blood test was taken from an animal that died mysteriously, and guess what was found in the blood? A virus that has a DNA match of 99% to the coronavirus in humans, which means if someone butchered one of these animals, the animal's blood could contaminate the industrious meat handler. Amazingly, some scientists don't agree that 99% match is conclusive. The virus found in the civet was 99.8% match to the SARS virus. Now, hey, you say 99% conclusive. I say you're telling me there's a chance. Anyway, it's November and I'm still sweating. So uh, tell me about our cool northern neighbors. Oil production off Canada's Atlantic coast is still down a small amount. 
not COVID related, but related to Terra Nova being completely offline and more mature grades, North Amethyst, White Rose, and Hibernia in slow, steady decline. What is not in decline is Hebron, which almost completely made up for the declining grades and the lack of Terra Nova production. Also notable, and could definitely be COVID-induced, is that all expansion or new products are now stopped. The last Beidou Nord rig stopped in October, except for one that will start in April. Sinook, China National Offshore Oil Corporation, owns two leases for drilling that they plan to drill in the second half of 2020, but only recently contracted a drilling ship and will start in April of 2021. A couple things that make this significant. The Chinese government nor the Chinese oil companies need external funding and therefore don't give a rip about the equator principles. The equator, equator principles are the 10 principles that are driving sustainable energy finance. This creates a disturbingly uneven playing field. Also, the Flemish Pass could arguably be the harshest production region in the world. Sure, the Flemish Pass has bone-crackling cold and oppressive ice formations. That's kind of the minimum standard for harsh environments. Toss in, the Flemish Pass Basin is at the confluence of the very cold north-to-south Labrador Current and the warm south-to-north Gulf Stream. So, perpetual fog and a wicked twisting ocean. And if that isn't fun enough, they get to spend their spring and summer dodging icebergs from the Arctic. No one is standing at the bow of this FPSO with arms stretched, screaming king of the world. On the east refinery front, refinery margins remain in the mid-70s for utilization rates. This is a bit misleading, as some refineries, like the Come By Chance 130,000 barrel a day refinery, seems to have come to an end of the road, at least as a refinery. Jean in Quebec looks to have survived the pandemic in reasonable shape, albeit derated for most of the year. Suncor's 160,000 barrel a day refinery in Montreal ran at varying levels during the year. Like just about everyone else, they took the opportunity to do some maintenance. The real surprise, at least to me, is the St. John refinery. Their month-on-month exports from SEPOC 2019 to SEPOC 2020 is down a meager 12%. That's it. These exports serve the Pad 1A area, so basically New York City up through Maine. The refineries around Sarnia are facing long-term headwinds. COVID certainly blew a chilly breeze their way as Shell put the refinery on the block and no one stepped up. This COVID-induced acceleration on smaller and less efficient refinery closures is a trend we're going to see a lot more of. Refineries in the West continue to edge higher, approaching 94% utilization rates. From an oil production perspective, I, nay, no one, likes artificial caps and limits. Until they work. Well, sort of. Such is the case with oil production in Alberta. In December of 2018, then-Alberta Premier Rachel Notley introduced mandated curtailments to Alberta production in an effort to rein in production that significantly exceeded the ability to move the oil. The current production limit is 3.81 million barrels a day for Alberta. 
What this curtailment did do is stabilize and raise the differential of WTI to WCS at Hardesty. In the no free lunch category, the curtailments achieved their goals, but at the expense of foreign ownership and employment. Point of all that, no curtailments starting December 1st. So will Alberta go crazy go nuts? Unlikely. Just last week, Chicago is in lockdown. Group The Group 3 area, which encompasses a few states, won't go into lockdown as that phrase draws severe backlash from politicians, but they will pull back. This pullback is also happening in WCS's biggest market of Houston. In spite of the very strong differential at present, this current second wave of infections will limit production expansion in Alberta. So I looked for an easy way to play the chorus to Phantom Planet's song, California. I'm sure I'd be committing some sort of copyright infringement. So instead, Jim, what have you got for the U.S.? Lawyers. Sheesh. <laughs> I could talk about COVID-accelerated trends in refineries being shut down or derated, which means running at lower levels, or changing traffic patterns or gasoline or distillate demand. But instead, I'm going to focus on a trend that has been developing and certainly is COVID accelerated. Two statements that on the surface look similar, but in execution are radically different. On September 23rd, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, made an executive decree, which I believe is Latin for I'm smarter than Congress, that all new passenger cars and light duty trucks will be emission free by 2035. That's 14 years. On October 27th, China made a statement that all non-hybrid cars will be eliminated by 2035. 100% gone. With a milestone of 75% gone by 2030. Three items here. One, difference between hybrid and EV. Two, talking about batteries. Three, do either have the electrical generation for this? First off, Thank you, Gavin Newsom, for finally starting to clean up California's car mess. At about 16.5 million cars, California has about the same number of cars as the bottom 25 states combined. Of that 16.5 million, about 685,000, or 4.1%, are zero emission. This number is, of course, paltry compared to the 360 million cars in China. Of that 360 million, 235,000 are hybrid or electric vehicle. That's 0.00065. With that said, my money's on China in this contest. A hybrid can be as simple as one electric motor powering one of the back wheels. Relatively small step change in electrical, structural, and drivetrain. Even though their task is monumentally bigger, the changes China is talking about are actually doable. California, on the other hand... This is an example of a top-down analysis without any consideration for logistics. By saying no new gasoline cars sold after 2035, they're hoping no gasoline cars at all by 2050. Certainly, the sales mandate is technically enforceable, but is it logistically doable? Who's going to pay for the two to $5,000 charging station that you have to get put in your house? 
or the estimated 200,000 public charging stations needed. Let's look at a couple of additional considerations separately. The batteries used in cars today utilize lead plates and sulfuric acid. Whereas they can and do accept electrical charge, they're far too inefficient and heavy for full-on electric vehicles. Lead acid batteries will work as a transition for hybrid vehicles, which means China's plan can exist without a plan to reinvent copper and cobalt mining and equally important metal refining. Fire refining of copper is very energy intensive. Finally, China obviously thought about the electricity demand associated with EVs against the dramatically smaller electric load for hybrids. California did not. Both are massively short power as they look to 2035 and 2050. We'll leave the China situation for another time. This summer, California showed they are underprepared even in the current environment. The rolling blackouts that lasted two hours for residents and one hour for business were a result of principally three things. Very hot temperatures for an extended period, too much reliance on intermittent power gen, and a power market still twisted from the humiliation of the Enron debacle. As they look to 2050, estimates of the Cal ISO are they will need to build the equivalent of 45 Ivan pod generating systems. In the past 15 years, they built 14, with two more under construction and two more planned. That smells a lot like $110 billion. Wonder who's going to make that loan guarantee. Well, not AMLO, but tell us about Mexico anyway. Dos Bocas refinery flooded five times this year. Started with Cristobal in early June. Cristobal started in the Bay of Campeche and didn't move for a few days. Massive rainfall and close to 10-foot storm surge. The Laura Marco dance caused a 5-foot storm surge and lots of rain from the outer bands in late August. Then Hurricane Nana came on shore near Belize and dumped rain on Dos Bocos before coming out the Pacific side as a tropical storm Julio. Tropical Storm Beta formed in the Bay of Campeche and dropped rain, but only 10 days later. Then came Tropical Storm Gamma and Delta, just a couple days apart in early October. Considering the brutal year for southern Mexico, Dos Bocas flooding is expected. From the pictures I saw supplied from the governmental agency and local reporters, there was never more than a foot of water in this massive construction project. Apparently, the engineers at Samsung, who were responsible for laying down the footings for the six packages, got pretty good at drainage. These, of course, are not related to COVID, but delayed the project long enough for the politics to kick into high gear. COVID did play a massive issue for Pemex, however. It's important to note that Pemex has an extraordinarily broad and generous health plan. Pemex employs a startling 125,000 people, yet the health plan supports around 750,000 people. The most recent numbers from Pemex show around 31,000 suspected cases with respiratory issues, around 19,000 have been tested, and 11,600 confirmed cases. No definitive numbers, but they indicate 
The huge balance of that number is pensioners, family members, and contractors. Indeed, of the 1,900 or so deaths, only 440 were active workers. The rest were pensioners, family members, and contractors. Pemex is reporting their platforms are between 70 and 85% fully staffed. A typical Mexican platform will have about 350 workers on it at any one time. This hasn't hurt production that much. In January, Pemex production was 1.974 million barrels a day. That is total production, including the relatively small partner production of 270,000 barrels a day. In September, which is the most recent data released, their production was 1.904 million barrels a day, or a decrease of 3.5%. None of the decline was from partner production. One small but interesting note is their condensate pro- One small but interesting note is their condensate production doubled from January to September. The numbers are small, 24 KBD in Jan against 55 KBD in September, but I wonder why they chose to do that. That's eh, an issue for another day. One last view of COVID, clean product demand damage comes from Refinitiv's flow page. As an example, in January, Mexico received 21.5 million barrels of refined product via waterborne, 133 vessels. In October, that volume was 14.3 million barrels, or a 33.5% decrease. The number of ships diminished to a comparable 84 vessels. So, Corey, where is South America in all this? You know, I feel like there is so much around this subject when it comes to South America. I don't want to just shotgun it and scratch the surface of a few countries and call it a day. So for me, I'm just going to focus on Brazil. Apologies to listeners from other regions, and especially my customers in Colombia and Argentina. You're some of my favorite people. For those of you relatively new to our podcast, and really for those not intimately familiar with the South American energy industry, the reason for the Brazil focus is primarily just math. About 50% of South America's population is in Brazil. A little more than half the region's refined products demand is from Brazil. The country produces 55% of all crude oil produced in South America. And when it comes to refining capacity, 42.3% of South American refining capacity is inside of Brazil's borders. Another reason for focusing on Brazil, coronavirus numbers. You've no doubt heard that Brazil has the third highest incidence in the world of COVID infections. But as a saying popularized by Mark Twain goes, there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. Okay, so Brazil's status is third highest in the world. It's not a lie, but in the energy industry, we're not content with a lot of talk about absolutes. For example, maybe we say something like WTI is $40 per barrel. and Maybe we give some color about how that differs from the same time last year. But decisions aren't based on those observations. They're based on things like the relationship of product prices versus crude prices, regional differences in product prices, quality differences in crude prices, etc. The relationships are what matters. The same can be said with COVID analysis. Brazil has the third highest infections, but its infection rate is not all that horrible. The U.S. rate is 2.9%. Brazil's is 2.6%. And when we compare the other countries in South America, we have some that are lower. But Argentina, Chile, and Peru are all higher with 2.7% rates. Taking it a step further, 
Now, every life affected by this horrible outbreak is important. There are some concerns about how COVID deaths are evaluated. But when you look at the mortality rate, Brazil's is high at 2.9%. But compared to Bolivia, 6.2%, Ecuador, 7.4%, pales. Now, granted, the infection rates in those countries are lower, around 1%. So, okay. Compare Peru, a slightly higher infection rate of 2.7%, and a mortality rate of 3.8%. What has COVID done to Brazilian energy? As far back as April, prognosticators were already saying that the global economy was, and would be, in the worst shape since the 1930s. Brazilian industry had declined to the point of using 10% less energy. Petrobras has been the process to sell the eight refineries they were going to sell, that we've spoken about here before, reduce crude production by 200,000 barrels per day, and cut $3.5 billion in investment planning. And the official GDP forecast for Brazil fell from 2.25% to 0.02%. How optimistic. The most recent IMF forecast puts Brazilian GDP growth in 2020 at negative 5.8%, and 2021 with a modest recovery of 2.8%. There has been a recovery since April, most notably in manufacturing, retail, and other areas as lockdowns have eased. And this has been aided by robust fiscal stimulus that has helped in the near term. But that could, of course, have adverse effects on the medium-term growth of the country, a subject outside of the scope of this podcast. But the reopening effort and plans to address the virus continue as a point of contention in Brazil, with state-level control of reopening measures contrasted with the ideals of President Bolsonaro, who has approached the pandemic in much the same way as President Trump. One of the more recent issues here have been the protests, supported by Bolsonaro, against mandatory vaccination in Sao Paulo. Interesting. So you mentioned Petrobras production cut in the first half of the year, but where's Brazilian upstream now, and where are we going? That's a great question. We've been watching Brazilian production increase steadily over the years. Before a drop in the 20-teens and a year-over-year decrease from 27 to 2018, since we saw January production top nearly 3.2 million barrels per day in January this year, which was the highest production that Brazil had ever been. There were some economic production cuts as COVID began taking hold, but a lot of what affected Brazilian production was virus outbreaks across many of the offshore platforms. It got so bad at one point that the FUP Oil Workers Union asked the A&P to suspend operations at several of these platforms. But that really didn't grind oil production to a halt in Brazil. We saw May production numbers fall to 2.8 million barrels per day, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not that low. Last time we saw a number like that was July, August of last year, which differs from a lot of the numbers we give context to by saying, we haven't seen these numbers this low for this number of years. And by June, production was already back over 3 million barrels per day. Okay, so despite significant COVID interference, production still marching along. What about net exports? The numbers are a bit more erratic, but if you draw a linear trend line up and to the right, from a percentage net exports to production view, aside from a strong 57% in April of this year, each month since September of 2019 has been between 40 and 50%. And for this year, often more. But generally around 50% of Brazil's crude exports go to China. 
So to answer the question where we are going with Brazil and upstream with the second wave of COVID as a headwind, well, I think that largely depends on how other countries, most, most notably China, deal with increased outbreaks. And just to throw just to throw in, the longer term, Brazil has plans to steadily increase production up to five to five point five million barrels and sustain that level of production through twenty fifty. What about the refined product side? So our listeners are from all over, but for those of us in the U.S., Brazil has basically flipped to how we think about gasoline and diesel demand. Brazil's diesel demand has averaged about 40 to 42% of refined products demand, while gasoline hangs between 26 to 29%. I'm looking at the latest data point in June, so I know things have improved since then, but let's compare the June 2019 to June 2020 period. From the highest rating to the lowest, Brazil suffered a 27% hit to refined products demand. This is not seasonally adjusted, so when I think about LPGs in Brazil, which make up a not insignificant part at 10%, the max-min difference is 16%. But I know that for a period, LPG use was higher seasonally because of COVID. More people home, more people cooking at home. This actually resulted in the country having to look at record LPG imports to cover demand. Outside of that, MoGas impacted by 23%, diesel by 29%, Jet Caro by 86%. Now, Jet Caro only accounts for about percent of Brazilian demand, so in the grand scheme, it doesn't translate to a large refined products hit. But let's agree. First wave COVID impact on refined products represents the bottom of demand. From our friends at IIR back on 11-11, Brazil refinery utilization was about 89%. It had reached a high of 92% post-COVID high. The 2019 average utilization was about 88%, and the low this year was on April 19th at 57%. So, running refineries at less than 60% utilization often breeds problems that extend after ramping back up. And of course, not every Brazilian refinery is operating at these low levels. But I think here, like products demand finding its low at the height of COVID, we find the lowest utilization we can likely expect the second wave of COVID. Also looming is Petrobras refinery sales. Depending on buyers, the question of utilization generally how those refineries were run post-sale. So here again, I think the larger question goes to trade flows. On a good day, Brazil is a net importer of refined products. The 2019 average was about half a million barrels per day. And digging deeper, there's some opportunistic trading with gasoline and jet caro, i.e. there are volumes going out as well as coming in. But in both cases, net imports are positive. But when it comes to both LPGs and diesel, all imports. There are occasionally some diesel exports, but like a high of 8,000 barrels a day. And it's worth noting that the consistent diesel short was what sparked the construction of the Abru e Lima refinery. Now, we entered this year with a greater than average net imports. As the virus took hold, we actually saw net imports fall precipitously. And as U.S. refiners started with earnings calls this year, as significant losses mounted up, Several identify Latin America as crucial in taking refined products exports. To be fair, this largely meant Mexico, a country that has struggled for years to run its refineries, but it also meant Brazil. Fair enough. U.S. imports have made it the lion's share, in some months the only, refined products imports into Brazil. From time to time, other imports have shown up on the scene, generally from ARA, but also from the Middle East and India. 
But as this pandemic has worn on, a greater share of the U.S.'s share has been eroded. Overall, net imports have fallen the last few months, but even when there are imports, a greater share is being taken by the Middle East and India. I see this continuum in some ways. But in this regard, I think we'd also consider how other countries deal with the second wave. We're seeing more lockdowns in, say, Europe, so maybe utilization falls there to meet mostly local demand. U.S. refining will be based on economics, as one living in Texas, where capacity exists that serves Brazil, you often won't be able to tell that a pandemic is going on at all. So, net imports remain lower, but if the virus gets worse and net imports remain about where they are, the U.S. starts to take them back share. Okay, that's all for me. Jim, closing thoughts? COVID is going to be with us for a while. It took 10 years after the polio vaccine became available to get that virus down to a fraction of 1%. This rollout will be a lot quicker, but industry is forced to make adjustments. And as we've heard, they have and will continue to do so. Next week, Coy and I will be exploring the concept of failure of imagination as it relates to the oil business. Thanks, Jim. Now, it's out there on social media, but don't forget to register for Refinitiv's Caribbean Energy Outlook webinar on December 1st. I want to try and not ramble on so much and give Tanisha and Michael a chance to talk, so it's definitely worth your time. Until next time, have a great week.